Welcome to the Rashi Share, coming to you from the Mizrahi Bet Midrash in Melbourne, Australia. So tonight we meet to have a share, but I am away for the next two weeks. So we will meet again on the 14th of July, which is the 11th of Tammuz. Um, but the five-minute Rashi will still be coming out each week. Uh, this week is a seven-minute Rashi. I hope people don't mind the 40% extra. But that will come out on Wednesdays, even when the main share is uh, in recess. So we are up to Perak Dalad Pasuk Yud Bet, and the story so far is that Cain has been, been punished by Hashem for killing his brother, and he's being told that he will be Ata Arur Ata Min Haadama Asher Patsta Et Piha Lakachat Et Meachecha Achicha. Sorry, that's what it says in Pasuk Yud Aleph. Um, that uh, you are cursed from the ground, which opened its mouth to accept the blood of your brother, of your brother Miyadecha, from your hands. And then it says in Pasuk uh, Yudbet, Ki ta'avod et hadama lo tosef teit kocha lach. When you work the land, it will not continue to give its strength to you. And we talked last week about how this is more of a curse than what Adam was told. Adam was told that the ground will throw up thorns and thistles, but by the fresh of the sweat of your brow, uh, you will manage to eat bread. Now we're told that the quality of the ground itself is reduced and it will not give its strength to Cain when he starts growing things. And then the Pasuk says, Na v'nad va'aretz. Na Vanad are variously translated, a wanderer and a vagabond, I've seen it, or a wanderer and an exile. Something to do with wandering. You will be in the land. And Rashi on those words says, Na Vanad, Ein Lacha Rushut Ladur Bimkom Echad. You do not have permission to dwell in one place. So what's Rashi saying here? How else could you have understood Na Vanad Tihiyat Ba'aretz? So you could have understood it as a curse. So in addition to the ground not opening its, sorry, opening its mouth and therefore not giving its strength to you, so you won't be able to get much growth out of the ground. In addition, you will be a um, wanderer. That's also part of the curse. Or you could say that it's a consequence of the curse because where you farm the ground, it won't give you much produce. You'll have to go somewhere in order to find better ground. Now, that actually doesn't make sense. You might think that's what it means, but it can't be. Why not? Because Hashem's punishment will apply anywhere. So there's no um, point in Cain going somewhere else to get better ground because Hashem has said, it won't give its strength to you anywhere. And Hashem obviously can make sure that happens anywhere. So what is Rashi saying? It's not a curse. It's not a consequence of a curse. It's a mitzvah that Hashem is saying as a punishment, this is what you will, this is what's going to happen to you. You are not allowed to dwell in any one place. You will have the punishment of exile. And that seems to be what Rashi is saying. Ein you do not have permission. You might want to dwell in one place, but I'm telling you, you're not allowed to dwell in one place. I am not giving you permission to dwell in one place. Now, we can go straight on to Pasuk Yud Gimel. Vayomer Kain el Hashem, Godol avoni minaso. Kain says to Hashem, my sin is greater than can be borne, or my sin is too great to bear. So, it sounds like 
Cain has got the message. He realizes he's done a terrible sin and he's sorry that his sin is so great. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> sorry, that was just like a, a trick. Sorry, sorry you all wrote that down diligently and now you're going to cross it out because that is not how Rashi reads it. Rashi says, he adds, first of all, one word, bitmia. What does bitmia mean? It's a question. So it should be read not as my sin is too great to bear, but my sin is too great to bear. What are you talking about? My sin is too great to bear. Continues Rashi. You, Hashem, this is Kain's words, you bear the upper worlds and the lower worlds, the avoni ef shaliton, and my sin, it's impossible for you to bear, for you to carry. In other words, he's sort of saying, do me a favor. Surely my little sin can be born, B-O-R-N-E, by you. After all, you bear the whole entire universe. What, why does Rashi say this? And what, what, what word in particular is Rashi explaining? So I think why Rashi says this is because Rashi has a view which he pieces together from this whole chapter that Cain is not a good person. Cain is a bad person. <coughs> and Rashi sees no evidence that Cain really does do to sugar. Um, I'm not 100% sure why Rashi is sure of that, why we can't read the next few pasukim in a more positive light, but Rashi doesn't. So to be consistent, given what's going to happen, um, it doesn't make sense now for Cain to be all contrite. Rashi sees him as not contrite, as not doing teshuva. He doesn't, I suppose, maybe because he doesn't get let off the punishment. There's no sense that there's teshuva with the normal positive consequences of teshuva. And therefore, this verse, in Yud, what he's saying in Yud Gimel, is not an expression of teshuva, but rather it's an expression of, do me a favor, what's, what's the big deal? I only did a little thing. I only killed my brother. It's not such a terrible thing. Which word is Rashi explaining? So I think he's explaining the word minitso from being born. Now, we find miniso, or se, uh, as an expression of kapara, no se pesha. Hashem is able to uh, bear sin, which means to forgive sin. So that's how um, it seems that Cain is using it. You're not able to bear my sin. I keep translating it that way. What he means is you're not able to forgive my sin. Now, Rashi translates that word into a more common word, a word that we can get our teeth around more easily, which is to'en, to bear, same word in English, but it's, a, I think, a more recognizable form. So when Cain says, my sin is too great to bear, sorry, I said a moment ago, that means my sin is too great to be forgiven, but he, Rashi says he's, he's translating it more literally than that. My sin is too great to bear, B-E-A-R. After all, says Kain, you bear a lot of things. That's what Rashi's saying. You bear the upper worlds and the lower worlds, so you're able to carry a lot of things. Surely you can carry my little sin as well. So I think Rashi, by saying, is explaining this word, my sin is too great to carry, to bear. And that's why Kain says, I can prove to you that my sin shouldn't be too great to carry because you carry lots and lots of other things, much bigger than this. Reminds me of um, students and sometimes even their parents who say, yeah, I know my kid did something wrong, but it was only a little bit wrong. So surely you can um, overlook it on this occasion. Or <laughs> if actually following the line that kind actually says, according to Rashi, people say, well, yeah, I know I did a little wrong thing, but 
he did a much bigger wrong thing. So worry about him and ignore what I've done. Now, Kain carries on. And, and by the way, this probably, what he says in Yudalad, confirms Rashi's understanding of Yud Gimel. Because in Yudalad he says, Hain gerashta oti hayom. Behold, you have exiled me, you've driven me away today, me'al panei ha'adama, from the face of the earth, umi panecha, and from your face, esater, I will be hidden, v'hayiti na'vanad ba'aretz, and I will be a stranger and a exile in the land. And anyone who finds me will kill me. So this probably is a better explanation of what I was trying to say about Yud Gimel. In Yud Dalad, Cain is complaining. He's clearly complaining about the punishment. He's saying the punishment you're giving me is, is very bad. And the result is... You're going to, because you make me a Navanad, you make me a stranger and a wanderer, I am therefore vulnerable and I'm going to be killed. And that's not part of the punishment. You didn't say anything about being killed, but you've put me in a situation where I'm going to be killed. So in Yud Dalad, he's clearly complaining. Therefore, says Rashi, in Yud Gimel, he is not accepting the punishment and accepting the gravity of his sin. That's why Rashi explains Yud Gimel as saying, he's pitmiah, he's asking a question. Why can't you forgive me? And then he goes on to say that in your dullard, look, all these bad things are going to happen to me, including something which is worse than you've actually said is the punishment. Namely, I'm going to get killed. Just note, by the way, Russia actually doesn't say anything on your dullard. So I'm just explaining your dullard really in relation to your gimel. But just note what Kind sees as the terrible things that are going to happen. Three things, well, four things, basically. I've been removed from the face of the earth and I'm hidden from you. Perhaps you can say it's significant that Kain puts it in that order. So first is I haven't got a place of my own. Secondly, I can't connect to you, Hashem. Perhaps we can say that he should have put it the other way around. And I'm going to be a wanderer. And I'm going to get killed. Okay. Now we come to Pasuk Tetvav, which uh, I've been looking forward to for weeks. So I said that uh, Pasuk Zion that we did last week is, I said, the hardest Pasuk in Bereshit, according to Nechama Levitz. Pasuk Tetvav comes pretty close. Let's see what Hashem says. And let's see what Rashi says about what Hashem says. Vayom Hashem, l'chein kol hore kain, shivatayim yukam. Hashem said to him, therefore, anyone who kills kain, something like seven times, not quite clear what shivatayim means, yukam, he will be avenged. And then it says, Vayasem Hashem Lakain Ot. Hashem gave Kain a sign, Levilti Hakot Oto Kol So that anyone who finds him will not smite him. So the second part, well, it's got a little bit of a question. What's the sign? But we'll deal with that in a little while. The first part is what Rashi has a lot to say on. Kol Hore Kain Shivatayim Yukam. How do we translate that? Anyone like to have a go? Without looking in the English? Especially not the English well, of the Rashi, because that's based on Rashi's translation. It seems like all who kill Cain. Yes? But it seems like it has to be plural then. Or it could be anyone who kills Cain. Yeah, so what happens to anyone who kills Cain? It'll be avenged, whatever Shiva Tayyam means, as you said. Right, who will be avenged? It seems like the killer, I assume. The killer will be avenged? Well, what does avenged mean? Avenge means, well... Yeah, you'd say like Kain's death. 
you would have thought, it, okay, it sounds like Cain's death will be avenged. So it, you might want to read it as anyone who kills Cain, he will be avenged seven times. Now you're right, it could be he the murderer, if something then happens to him, he will be avenged seven times. But that's like three links in the chain away. So perhaps we can say, whoever kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times. Rashi doesn't translate it like that. And I would suggest because two things. Number one, that's not much of a comfort to Cain. Cain says, help, I'm going to get killed. And Hashem says, don't worry, whoever kills you will really suffer. Right? That doesn't actually help Cain. He's still going to get killed. That's problem one. Problem two is that's not what happened. Because Cain does get killed by somebody called Lemech. And Lemech isn't then suffering some horrible death as a vengeance on behalf of Cain. So if that's what Hashem were saying, well, he couldn't be saying it because that's not what's going to happen. So Rashi says, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean whoever kills Cain, he, Cain, will be avenged seven times. Nor, by the way, does it mean whoever kills Cain, the killer will be avenged seven times because that really doesn't make sense. So Rashi's forced to say it means something quite different and he's forced to explain the Pasuk in a very radical way from a grammatical point of view. And he says, let's see Rashi in Tetvav. L'chein kol horei kain. Ze echad min hamikraot shekatsru divrehem. This is one of the verses that they shortened its words. V'ramzu, and it alludes v'lo pirshu, but it's not explicit. Now, by the way, Rashi often talks about a mikra katsar, an abbreviated verse. And normally it means that a subject of a verb it has not been specified. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I can't right off the top of my head, but there are loads. He sent. Uh, I'm just sort of making this up. And Rashi will say, this is a mikra katsar. It doesn't say who sent, but we'll work it out. Rashi does that a few times. In this case, it's much more of a mikra katsar. There's a whole chunk that's been missed out of this pasuk, according to Rashi. And he goes on to say, L'chein kol horeg kain. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, Loshan Ga'ara, that's an expression of a threat. And what it means is, Ko Ya'aselo, such and such will be done to him. Kach v'kach on show, such and such will be his punishment, the punishment of whoever kills Cain. Velo Piresh on show, but it doesn't actually explain what the punishment is. So it's Kol Hore Cain, whoever kills Cain will obviously be nastily punished, but the nastily punished bit is not said in the Pasuk. Those words are missed out. Now, as I said earlier, Rashi, I think, is forced to this radical interpretation, and I think it is forced, because it's not normal for the Pasuk to miss bits out, although Rashi is going to give us a parallel where a similar thing happens to prove that it's justified. Um, but I think because of the difficulty in explaining the Pasuk any other way, Rashi has to go for this radical idea that there's a bit missed out. So, kol hore kain, whoever kills kain, open brackets, will himself be punished in a bad way, close brackets. It just so happens those brackets aren't written in the text because they're not critical. All we need to know is that he's going to be punished, and that's obvious by the, the force of the expression, kol hore kain, whoever kills kain, obviously is introducing some punishment for the killer of Cain. I'm saying it's obvious. Rashi thinks it's obvious. Uh, I think we have to go with Rashi and assume that it is obvious. Now, 
So that's the first bit. Kol Horekain is followed by words which are not printed in our text. Namely, what's going to be the punishment for the killer of Kain. Then we come to the word Shivatayim Yukam, which is now completely separated from the words Kol Horekain. It's nothing to do with it. It's a new sentence. Kol Horekain, whoever kills Kain will be punished, full stop. And then something else. Shivatayim Yukam. Rashi on the word Shivatayim Yukam. Eini rotzeh lehinakeim mikayin achshav. I, Hashem, don't want to take vengeance from Cain now. Lesof shiva dorot ani nokem nikmati mimenu. After seven generations, I will take my revenge from him. From whom? From Cain. Shia'amod lemech. That somebody called Lemech will arise from his descendants and will kill him. So, Kolorekain means whoever kills Kain will get punished, even though the words will not get punished isn't there. Shivatayim Yukam means after seven generations. So the word Shivatayim, which I said is an obscure word. And the other Mephoshim argue with Rashi because it doesn't mean seven generations. But Rashi says it does mean seven generations. So it means after seven generations, he will be avenged. Who's he? All right, hold that thought if you haven't worked it out because we'll come back to that. So, by the way, guess what generation Lemech was after Cain? Okay, so it works. See, again, this is what's driving Rashi. Rashi's read ahead. Rashi knows that Cain is going to get killed. So Hashem is not promising Cain he's not going to get killed because he does get killed. And he gets killed by somebody who, of all numbers, is seven generations later. So Rashi says, that's what Shivatayim means. Now then, continues Rashi. The Sof HaMikra Sha'amar, the end of the Pasuk, well, it's actually the middle, but it says, Shivatayim Yukam, Vahi Nakamat Hevel Mikain. That is the vengeance of Hevel, on behalf of Hevel, from Kain. So to be precise, Shivatayim Yukam means after seven generations, he will be avenged. Who's he? Hevel. It's the vengeance on behalf of Hevel, which is extracted from Kain. It will come, but after seven generations. So by the way, what Rashi actually doesn't spell out, but I'm going to spell out, is how does this answer Kain's problem? Kain in Pasuk Yudal had said, help, they're going to kill me. What does Hashem say in response? Well, by the way, he's going to give him a sign so they won't kill him, but he is going to get killed. You're, you're right, Kain, you are going to get killed, but the good news is, how is this any sort of consolation? It's in seven generations' time. That's the best that Hashem offers. So that's the answer. You're not going to get killed today or tomorrow. It's going to be a long time, but by the way, you will get killed at the end. It's going to happen. Okay, continues Rashi. Um, I'll go back a little bit. The Sof HaMikra, the end of the Pasuk, where it says, Shivatayim Yukam, Vehina Kamat Hevel Mikain, and that is the vengeance of Hevel, the one whom Kain killed, the vengeance of Hevel from Kain. Halamadnu Shetechilat Mikra Loshen Ga'arahi. The Rashi's sort of uh, saying, look, look, uh, this is why I can say what I said about the beginning. The end of the Pasuk, this teaches us that the beginning of the Pasuk was an expression of a threat. That no creature should harm him. So, Shiva time you come is like its separate thing. And this is the point that Rashi is making. Because Shiva time you come is basically a sentence on its own, 
after seven generations he will be avenged. Therefore, kol horekain is a separate sentence and it must be understood as an expression of a threat, although the threat is not specified. So that is part of the consolation to Cain, but it's not complete consolation. Whoever kills Cain will get punished, but you're still going to get killed. But it won't be until after seven generations. That's the Rashi on this Pasuk, and we'll come back to the bit about the sign that Hashem gave him. But now we go off for a little diversion, because uh, it seems to me Rashi is going to take quite a few lines on a completely separate matter in order to prove that there are Pasukim in the Tanakh where bits are missed out, where you have like the first part and the second part you just sort of work out for yourself. And the example is from Shmuel Bet, Perakhei, Pasukhet. And the story so far is that David is king and David lives where? Which city for the first seven years? In Hebron. And he fancies a new capital. And where does he want to go? Yerushalayim. Minor teeny-weeny problem. Other people are there in Yerushalayim. The Yevusi. So he's with his army. He's planning to capture Yerushalayim from the Yevusi. And it says like this. The Kiyotsebo, so similar to this, similar to our Pasuk where a bit's missed out, we find. David, David said on that day, Kol Make Yevusi, whoever smites the Yevusi, the Yiga Betsinar, and touches the Tsinar. Now it's interesting that some Mafarish um, uh, says Tsinar is like the bolt which locks the door. So if you can get to the tsinor, you can open the door and then everyone can come in. But what does tsinor usually mean? It means pipe or channel. So it's an interesting story, this. For years, nobody understood what the Pasuk means. But after the excavations, not the recently, but 100 years ago, 150 years ago, the excavations at the Kotel, where they found the water tunnel, not Cheskiel's tunnel, but the, the tunnel that actually intersects with Cheskiel's tunnel, there's this great big vertical tunnel, which I think the latest archaeological theory has changed this. But when I did my uh, Israel Machaner, this which was a long time ago, this is what I was told, that they reckon this, this vertical channel is how the Yavusi got their water uh, drawn up from this, this huge, like, mega site of well. And that was how David captured the city, because they climbed up through the channel and they entered the city that way, because it was the, the weak point. As I say, there, there may be other theories now, and uh, archaeology doesn't always explain what the Tanakh says, but sometimes it does. But anyway, David says, Whoever smites the Yavusi and touches or reaches, maybe reaches the Tsinor, whatever that was, maybe it's the water channel, maybe it's something else. And that's the end of the section of that verse. And it doesn't explain what will be done to this person. David is saying, I want one of my soldiers to take the initiative and lead ahead and get all the way to the Tsinor. And obviously the implication is such a person will be well rewarded. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't carry on. Um, but the pastor gives just an allusion, just a hint. And then, and reaches the gate, sorry, draws near to the gate and conquers it. And then the Pasuk goes on to say, Ve'et ha'ivrim, um, and the 
blind, I'll explain in a minute, v'gam otam yakeh, and also those it will smite, alasher omru, Rashi's quoting the Pasuk from Shmuel Bet, Perak Hey, Pasuk Chet, but he's interspersing it with his own sort of commentary as we go along. The Pasuk goes on to say, um, because they said, The blind and the lame will not come into the house. Now, um, I'll just pause for a minute and I'll come back to this. So what does this mean, the blind and the lame? It's not clear, it's very obscure, but it's understood to refer to idols that the Yavusi put on their ramparts, an idol of somebody in the form of a blind person and a statue of somebody in the form of a lame person, and they said, and the Pasuk says, while the blind and the lame are there, David will not come into the city. So David says, I want somebody to capture the city and deal with this blind and the lame. And I think it's important to stress, we don't mean people who are blind and people who are lame. They are not the ones being victimized, but statues in the form of idols of people who are blind and people who are lame. Um, and continues Rashi, Hamake et elu ani aeseno rosh I, the one who smites them, I will make a head and a minister. I'll promote them. Now, that's Rashi's words. And the crucial point is, it's not in the Pasuk. The Pasuk just says, David says, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, whoever does this great thing, pause. And whoever does this great thing, obviously means I will reward him. But it doesn't say that in the Pasuk. But it gets a little bit, uh, Rashi's got a very good basis for saying that's what it means. He says, Kan here in Shmuel Bet, it abbreviates its words, hayamim, but in Divre Hayamim, Aleph Yud Aleph Vav, Piresh, it does explain, that person will be a captain and a minister. Now, you probably know that many things in uh, Shmuel Aleph and in Malachim are repeated with slight variations in Divre Hayamim. Um, and there are many things that in order to get the full picture, you actually have to learn both in parallel. And this is one of them, because this story is repeated almost uh, verbatim, but with a few differences in Divra Hayomim. And one of these few differences is there the missing bit is included. And that's what Rashi means when he says, in Divra Hayomim, it says explicitly, he will be an officer and, uh, sorry, a captain and a, and a minister. And so those three words, which are A, in Divrahayamim explicitly, and B are obviously implied in Shmuel Bet, but are not present in Shmuel Bet. Those words are missed out. So what we have in Shmuel Bet is an example of David Amelach say, or the Pasuk saying, whoever does something, and then we have to work out what that means, what will happen to that person. Just like in our case here, Kal Hore Kain Shivataim Yukam. Whoever kills Kain. And then the rest of whoever kills Cain is the punishment that will be given to his killer is not spelt out and we have to just assume that it's there. And that's why Rashi brings the whole David Amela capturing Yerushalayim story. But I think since we've started it, I do want to say a few more words about this David Amela capturing Yerushalayim story. And what were the blind and the lame? So the Midrash says that they were statues and they were holding the document that in which Avraham Avinu promised Avimelech that he, his descendants or his grandchildren would not fight against the grandchildren of Avimelech. If you look in Perak Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Kaf, uh, Kaf Gimel, um, it's in Bereshit, so you've got it here. So 
it's the end of Yera, just before the Akedah, Abraham makes a deal with Avimelech. It's sort of this, it's like stuck in the middle between the story of Yishmael and then the story of the Akedah. And uh, Avimelech approaches Abraham. Avimelech was from the Plishtim. And he approaches Abraham and he says in Pasuk Kaf Gimel, for Atah Hishavali Elohim, now make an oath to me by God. If you're if you do, uh, if you cheat me or your children or grandchildren, um, in accordance with the kindness that I've done to you, you must not do anything bad to me. And Avram says, I promise. So it seems that Avram promises not to hurt Avimelech or his children or grandchildren. However, there is a Midrash which says that Avraham made a very specific deal and it connects buying Marasamach Pela to this oath to Avimelech that in return for buying Marasamach Pela, Avraham promised that his descendants up to the third generation would not attack or not get Yerushalayim. It's very interesting that this is a Midrash. The Rashbam, who is not... Uh, a great uh, user of Midrashim, describes this at length in the beginning of his description of the Akedah, when it says, uh, Elohim Nisa et Avraham. Uh, Hashem did what to Avraham? So we normally translate it as tested Avraham. And there's a great discussion about what that means. Why does Hashem need to test Avraham, etc., etc. The Rashbam says, Hashem was punishing Avraham. The whole Akedah was a punishment. Why? What did Avraham do wrong? So we go back to the previous paragraph. What happened immediately before the Akedah? He made the deal with Avimelech. And he signed away Yerushalayim. And Hashem, this is the words of the Rashbam, and it's so untypical for the Rashbam to give this whole story. Hashem said, who are you signing away Yerushalayim? You haven't got any right to do that. And therefore he gets punished with the Akedah. Now, why do I mention this in the Rashi Shir? Because I find it very interesting that Rashi doesn't mention this almost at all. Now, in Shmuel, he does. In Shmuel, he explains his whole story about the promise from Abraham. Oh, by the way, sorry, I missed out part of the punchline. So the Yavusi made statues, one representing somebody blind and one representing somebody lame. Guess who? Who's blind? Who's lame? Who's blind? That's an easy one. Yitzchak. And so Abraham's not, there's no statue of Abraham, not quite sure why. There's a statue of Yitzchak, and who's next? Yaakov, lame, why? The With the angel. So, so the Midrash says, the, ivri, uh, the uh, Ivrim or Psachim, the uh, blind and the lame, is a statue in the image of Yitzchak and a statue in the image of Yaakov, who were the children and the grandchildren of Abraham. So as if to say, you know, you made the deal that you can't hurt us, because, uh, at least for three generations. But the interesting thing is that Rashi does mention this, but totally derech agav, totally by the way, in Devarim Yud Bet, Yud Zion, we have a Pasuk that says about um, various foodstuffs, Lo tochal echol bisharecha, you can't eat in your own gates, in other words, in your own home. Maaseh dagancha, the tirashcha v'yitzarecha, the maaseh of your corn and wine and oil, ubacharot bakarcha, and the firstborn of your flocks, v'tzonacha, and your... Well, Cattle in your flocks, 
כי אם לפני השם אלוקיך תאכלנו במקום אשר יבחר השם אלוקיך בו. But all these foodstuffs you have to eat in Yerushalayim. So there are things that, because of the Kedusha, have to be eaten in Yerushalayim. And the Pasuk opens in Yudzayim, Lo tuchal le'echol b'sha'arecha. You are not able to eat in your gates. And Rashi says there, Lo tuchal, Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha Omer, Yochol ata, aval encha rashai. You are able, you're physically able. It's not, it's impossible for you to eat these foodstuffs outside of Yerushalayim, but you're not allowed. So lo tuchal here does not mean you're not able in a physical sense, but you're not allowed. And Rashi says that's, that's the use of lo tuchal here. And then Rashi says, kiyotsebo, and I'll find you a similar pasuk from Sefer Yeshua, where it says, v'etayavusi yoshve Yerushalayim, lo yochlu b'nei Yehuda lahorisham. The Yavusi were the dwellers in Yerushalayim. This is when Yeshua enters the land and they're like saying what bits they can capture now, which bits they're going to have to wait. They were not, the Bnei Yehuda were not able to drive them out, drive out the Yavusi. Says Rashi, quoting Rabbi Shua ben Karcha, comparing it to this Pasuk, he says, Yacholim hayu, they were able, al she'ayla she'enom rashayin, but they weren't allowed. Lefi she'koret lahem Avraham brit. Avraham had made a covenant with them. When he bought from them Maratamachpela. And then he says, The people he bought Maratamachpela from weren't actually the Yavusi, they were the Chittites. But because their city was called Yavus, they became called the Yavusim. So it's fascinating to me that such a critical incident in the life of Avraham Vino and the life of the Jewish people, you can't get much more insignificant than signing away Yerushalayim. Rashi has no doubt it happened. Rashi understands this as pshat, and that's what he says clearly in Shmuel. And he doesn't say what happened when Avram made that brit of Abimelech or whether, when he bought the Maratamach Pela or some sort of juxtaposition between the two, but he does bring it as a, just a, like a side point, as a, an example of the use of language down here in Pashat Re. Anyway, that's the story. So that was the deviation, the, the digression that Rashi went into here in um, Pasuk Tet Vav to explain that it's a precedent for missing bits out of a Pasuk. Any questions on all that? Yes? Um, just a quick question. Um, in regards to the whole idea of seven generations later um, getting vengeance for yes. Kain's death, um, how does... For Hevel's death. Yeah, for, sorry, for Hevel, yeah, sorry, Hevel's death. How is that um, justifying it? Justifying, how is that justifying what? How's murder justifying murder? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Why would they do the same act if it was so wrong? The Torah does believe in the death penalty. The Torah uh, mentions, in fact, somebody pointed out to me if it's interesting, the Torah mentions in each of the five Chumashim that nefesh tachet nefesh, basically, that if you kill someone, you get killed. Um, so it doesn't mean the death penalty was applied very often. We know the whole story, but the death penalty was only applied under very, very limited circumstances. But the principle of soul for a soul is there quite clearly in the Torah. Seven generations later just seems very harsh. Like, it's, it's a long time. Why, you think it should have been earlier? I don't know. Just to... well, is your question why it should take this long or why he should get killed? Well. You realize they're contradictory questions. Yeah. Okay, so one question is, why should he get killed? If murdering is wrong, then how is it right to 
respond by killing. And your second question is, if he's going to get killed in response to his action, why do you wait so long? I haven't really got a brilliant answer for either of them. Um, the first one I would say is, the Torah does say that people who kill deserve to be killed. Um, it's, not, it's not for us to bring that about, it's for Hashem to bring that about, or occasionally it's for a Sanhedrin to bring it about, but that is what the Torah regards as appropriate. As regards the second question, I suppose Hashem wants to lessen the punishment a little bit by delaying it, and that's good. I mean, it's not like kinds on death row, like we hear of people in America on death row for 20 years while they argue the case, and that's not a very nice way to live. Kind carries on living. He's about to have children. He's about to build a city. He does all sorts of nice things, but eventually it will catch up with him. So I haven't really got a brilliant answer to your question, but that's how I understand what's going on. Yes? Um, so Rashi goes into this whole explanation to begin with because if he left it, it wouldn't explain why Hashem didn't protect Cain when he was eventually killed. Well, uh, uh, this whole explanation, this bit about how he parses, how he what understands the puzzle. Because as? otherwise he would have said, Kol hore Cain shiva time you come. Whoever kills Cain, he will be avenged seven times. Right. Right. Either Cain will be avenged, which doesn't help Cain very much, okay. and doesn't actually happen, yeah. or the murder of Cain will be avenged, which makes even less sense. So I, I understand Rashi is saying those two options don't make sense. That's why I have to translate it otherwise. And one of the reasons it doesn't make sense is because to tell Cain that, don't worry, it, when you're killed, you'll be avenged, doesn't help him very much. You might say, well, being told he's going to be killed but after seven generations also doesn't help him very much, but it helps him a bit. It tells him that he's not going to get killed straight away. I mean, after all, he said, his, his expression was, Kol whoever finds me will kill me. So Hashem says, no, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. But one person will kill you, but in a long time in the future. But you can walk, you can go around your business, you can travel from place to place, as you're going to have to, by the way, without fearing that every person and every animal it's interesting what, what exactly kinds are afraid of um, whether it's animals or people without fearing that anyone's going to kill you it's not going to happen for a long time so that, that's some sort of response to his question let's continue to see what it means when the passage continues Vayasem Hashem Lakain Ot Hakot Oto Hashem gave a sign to Kain so that everyone who finds him will not kill him or smite him. Says Rashi, Hashem ot, lo ot He engraved for him a letter from his name on his forehead. So he had this great big sort of, I suppose it looks like a tattoo today, on his forehead with a letter from his name. This is where we need a Rashi on the Rashi, because there's an obvious ambiguity, which is, Whose name? What are the possibilities? Hashem or Kain. So it's not clear. And different Mephoshim say different things. Could, could it be Hebel's name? Like as a, uh, uh, it could be, but who's the last subject? Well, you know, if Rashi says Ot like the puzzle of Hashem Kain Ot, and it's not specific in terms of the puzzle. Yes, but. The normal rule is uh, if you're going to use a pronoun referring to a person, then it's the most recently named person. 
sure. which is either Hashem or Kain. Hevel was named in my book okay. several lines earlier. Yeah, yeah. We have the whole David Melech story yeah. in the middle, so I don't think so. And, and so I suppose it's a nice idea. He's branded with the name of the one whom he killed to remind him all the time. I don't know. But the, um, the, the Mephoshim of Rashi say either it's Hashem's name, and a letter from Hashem's name is obviously uh, protective, or it's a letter from Cain's name. Uh, it doesn't tell us which letter it would be. I think I saw somebody suggest it's a Yud from Cain's name. Yeah, it could be you from both names, but that's not what Rashi says. I mean, that's clever. That's clever. But Rashi says from his name. He just doesn't tell us which one it is. And it really, you could read it as if Yasem Hashem Lakain Ot Hashem gave Kain a letter from his name. It's really ambiguous. And then there is uh, in brackets. Who's got the text? The next bit in brackets, beginning Tavachah. Yes, yes. I think most people have it, but you should know that. Origin, many of the original texts of Rashi don't have it. So it's there, but it's in brackets. And it says, Devar Acher, another explanation. Kol anyone who finds me will kill me. So we go back to those words and we explain them. Habahemot v'hachayot, animals and wild animals or beasts. That's whom Cain is afraid of. Now, I said because uh, I had this in mind, that it's not clear whom Cain is afraid of. And it sounds like when Rashi introduced this as a Devar the second explanation says Cain was afraid of animals. That implies the first explanation, Cain wasn't afraid of animals, he was afraid of people. But the second explanation spells out why it's animals. Aval b'nei adam, adayin lo hayu, mehem. They weren't there that he would fear them. Rak aviv imo. Only people around are his father and his mother. Umehem lohaya yera shiyahaguhu. And they, he didn't fear that they would kill him. Ela amar, well, let's just pause for a minute. So, what's, Rash, what's Kain afraid of? And it affects what Kain means by his concern and how Hashem responds to it. So in this Devar Acher, in this alternative explanation, Rashi goes out of his way to say that Kain wasn't afraid of people. Because there's only two people left in the world. There were four. He's killed one. He's one of them. That leaves two. Good point. Uh, I've got a different question, but that's true. Um, that's very true. And Rashi's the one who said that there was a twin sister born with each brother and there was a second twin sister born with Hevel. So you're right. There's at least three extra women who aren't mentioned there. Um, I... Uh, <coughs> Yeah, I fear this might be another example of how women aren't given much publicity in the Chumash. There's also like that explanation that Kain was jealous of Hevel because he had a pretty wife. Yeah, that's right. Oh, a pretty wife. Prettier. Oh, I didn't know that one. Sorry, I, I, I jumped in. So you're saying, I'm repeating everything for the recording, that there's a midrash that Kain was jealous of Hevel because he had a prettier wife. I hadn't heard that. Rashi brings... No, no, Rashi doesn't bring. The midrash brings... No, Rashi does bring that there was a twin sister born with each of Cain and Hevel, but with Hevel there were two twin sisters making triplets. And then I, brought, I quoted a Midrash, which Rashi doesn't quote, but he alludes to, and he tells us to, like, to go and look at the Midrash, which asks what they were arguing about. And one of the things they were arguing about was who gets the second sister, the spare one. Obviously, they each get their own twin sister. That's, like, obvious. Um, remember, there wasn't much to choose from. You know, there was no other partners to, uh, to find and to 
establish the next generation with. But the question then was, was who gets the spare sister? And that's what they argued and kind killed Hevel about. Um, but you're right. Uh, it's interesting that Rashi says there was, uh, does he say there was no other people? Uh, Maybe we can say that Cain doesn't have to fear from his sisters because his sisters aren't going to kill him. The only people you might have thought might kill him are his mother and father, and they're not going to either. But, but I, you know, it's difficult for me to ask a question of Rashi, but the question I would ask is, there's no question, but there are going to be more people born, as indeed happens. Cain has children, or have children, or have children. The world is going to slowly be populated. So in the future, there are going to be people. Maybe Rashi's saying, at that particular moment, Cain is talking about whoever's going to find me now or tomorrow is going to kill me. And at that particular moment, there were only two other people who weren't his sisters in the world. And that was his father and mother, and he had no fear from them. So what did he fear? He feared the animals. The animals are roaming around. They're they're fierce, and they're going to kill him. And he explains a bit more why. Because he says, Ad ashav hayu pachdi al kol chayot. Until now, my fear, my awe, was on all the animals. Kamosha katuv, as it says, now this pasuk actually comes later. This is after the mabul, after the flood. But presumably what is said about the people at that time applies to the people at this time. And what it says in Perik Tet, Pasuk Bet, the fear of you will be on, on the animals. Hashem says to the Noach and to the Bnei Noach that you don't have to fear from the animals. So Cain says, slightly anachronistically, that was the case with me. My fear was on the animals. They weren't going to kill me. But the achshav bishvil avon zeh, now because of this sin, the sin that I've committed, lo yirumi many, they won't be afraid of me anymore, hachayot, the animals, v'yaharguni, and they will kill me. Miyad v'yasem Hashem lakain ot, and therefore immediately Hashem gave Kain a sign, hechzir mora'o al hakol, he put back the fear of him on all the animals. So according to the second explanation, we've got to the end of it now. It's not a sign. It's not a letter on his forehead. It's a different explanation. It's restoring the fear that animals have of humans, which Cain worries, and it sounds like Cain was correct, but that had been lost because Cain goes down a madrega, or, or several. Cain goes down a level. So the difference between Cain and the animals is not like it was before. Therefore, the animals are not scared of Cain like they were before. How do we know they're scared of kind? Because we're told after the flood that animals are scared of people. So Hashem gives him a sign, i.e. restores the natural fear that the animals have of kind. Why we have two explanations, I don't know. And the Mephoshim don't really talk about this second explanation. Um, I'm generalizing, but I didn't see the Mephoshim talk about this second explanation. Perhaps because they didn't have it in their text. So... Uh, there are two explanations, and what we should always do when there are two explanations is see what is the deficiency in one that requires the other, and vice versa. But I'm not entirely sure, and I couldn't find any help with that one. And it may be, as I say, that the whole the whole second explanation, is not actually there in Rashi. Shall we move on? Pasuk Tet Vazayan. What happens next? The Pasuk says, Vayetze kain milifnei Hashem, Vayeshev be'eret nod kidmat eden. Cain went out from before Hashem and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So let's start with Rashi on the Yetzei Cain. 
Yatsa Bahachnaa. He went out with humility. Kagonev Daat Heeliona. Now, Gonev Daat literally means steal the knowledge, but it's used here as we use it as Genevastas. Genevastas is to mislead somebody. Kagonev Daat Heeliona. As if he's misleading the high one, i.e., Hashem. Um, and we saw something very similar, yes, in Pasuk Tet, when Hashem asked him the question, Ei Hevel Achicha, where's, Hashem, where's Hevel your brother? And he replied, Lo Yodati. And Rashi there says, Naaseh Kagonev Dat Elyona. He became as if he was trying to mislead Hashem. You can't mislead Hashem. It was as if he was trying to mislead Hashem. And Rashi says the same thing here. On the words, So it starts by saying he went out humbly. And at this point you might think, oh, finally he's got it. Finally he's doing teshuva. No, Rashi doesn't let him do teshuva. It was as if he was trying to trick Hashem. Why does Rashi say that? What is there in the Pasuk that suggests that he was trying to trick Hashem? So an answer I saw is... The idea of Vayetze. Now, what does Vayetze mean? What's Vayetze mean? Went out. Went out. What does that mean? It means you go from A to B. You are no longer in A. You're now in B. And look where he goes out from. Where does he go out from? Milifnei Hashem. Now, put those two things together. He's going out from place A, implying he's no longer in place A, which means he's no longer in the presence of Hashem, but... How can he not be in the presence of Hashem? He's always in the presence of Hashem because Malehoret Kavoda, because everywhere is in the presence of Hashem. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to trick Hashem. He's trying to get away from Hashem, but of course he can't. And that's why Rashi castigates him and says, Now, Rashi also understands, I think it's part of the same thing, that his type of going out is apparently submissive. That's Yatsab Hachna'ah. He's going away as, as you go away from a king in a submissive nature. But, says Rashi, it's all a trick. And it's suggested that he, the, the Rashi's homing in on the Yetzeh Milifnei Hashem. He acted as if he was going out from before Hashem, which, of course, you can't do. And then it says, Vayeshev Be'eretz Nod Kidmat Edem. So, um, what Rashi has something to say on Be'eretz not. Let's see what he says and let's try and understand why he says it. He says, Be'eretz shakol hagolim nadim sham. The land that all who are exiled wander there or are exiled there. Kidmat Eden, east of Eden. Now, who else has been exiled east of Eden? Well, continues Rashi, Sham gila aviv. That's where his father was exiled, Kershagoresh Migan Eden, when he was exiled from Gan Eden. How do we know he went to the east? Shneemar, because the pasuk says, "Vayashken mikedem legan Eden, Hashem may dwell east of Gan Eden," referring to the kruvim and the fiery rotating sword, Lishmor et, and then Rashi adds Shmirat. To guard thee, Rashi adds the guarding of Derech, the way, Rashi adds Mervo Hagan, to, to the entrance to the Gam. So we can learn from that that Adam was there. 
because we don't know exactly where Adam went, but we know that Hashem, um, yeah, just said Hashem drove him out of the garden, uh, Gimel Kav Gimel. But then it says, no, it does say, sorry, that's a, Rashi's confused me. Pasuk Kaftala, Gimel Kaftala, it says, V'yagarish et Adam, V'yashken mikedem lagan edem. I know, I'm sorry, I've got it right. I'm confused. Rashi's got it right. He, Hashem may dwell east of Gan Eden, the Kruvim. So Hashem put the Kruvim east of Gan Eden. All it says in Kaf Gimel is that Adam went out from Gan Eden. It doesn't say where. Then in Kaf Dalet it says Hashem put the Kruvim on the east, which tells you where was Adam. He must be in the east. Otherwise there's no point in putting a guard on the door in a direction that's not where Adam is. So if the guard is on the eastern side, we learn that Adam was on the eastern side, just like Cain is now. But he goes on. Umatsinu. And we find Sharuach Mizrachit Koletet Bakolmakom et Harotzchim. We find that the eastern side is the place of refuge for all murderers. In all places. Sorry, in all places for murderers. Shinemar, because and now we're talking about the Ere Mikla, the cities of refuge. So we know in Eretz Israel. Uh, in the time of the Bet Mikdash, that people who murdered accidentally could find refuge in the Ari Miklat. And the Pasuk in Devarim Dalad Mem Aleph says, Oz Yavdil Moshe, there Moshe separated three cities before they'd entered into Eretz Israel, Mizracha Shemesh, on the eastern side. So, Rashi says that Kain settled in. Um, Eretz Nod Kidmat Eden. And Arashi has explained what Eretz Nod means in a certain way. But let's just pause uh, before we finish that explanation and see Rashi's second explanation. And here there's no brackets, this clearly is in the original Rashi. Deva Acher, another explanation. But Eretz Nod, Kol Makom Shahaya Holech, everywhere he went, Haitaha Eretz Mizda Azat, that the land would shake. Tachtav underneath him, v'habriat omrim, and people would say, "Surumelav, go away." Zehu sharag et achiv. This is the one who killed his brother. Two explanations of Eretz Nod. What are the two explanations? He's Rashi's understanding Nod in two very different ways. The first explanation, Eretz Nod, means the land of exiles. It's the or exile. And how do I know it's the land of exile? Rashi has to show that it's the place of exile, not just for Cain. It's the place where exiles go, and murderers in particular. So that's why Rashi brings the example of Adam, who was not a murderer, but he was in exile. And the subsequently people who murder run to the cities, which we have a Pasuk that says they're in the east. It's a little bit hard because that's referring to the ones that Moshe set up, which were Dafka on the east of the Yarde. But Rashi says there's some intrinsic connection between refuge and east. According to the second explanation, what does Nod mean? Eretz Nod, a land which shakes, a land which moves, the land itself moves. So Nod is something to do with movement, exile, uh, getting, getting away. So now Rashi says the land itself moves. That's Rashi's second explanation. So he goes to a land which itself moves and people will say, go away. Now, it just occurs to me, that um, we haven't really got time because we're coming to the end of the shear to analyze why there's two opinions. But one of them reflects better what Hashem said 
in Pasuk Yud Bet, you will be a stranger in the land, you, sorry, you will be a wanderer in the land, and Rashi there says, you won't have permission to dwell in one place. Now, according to Rashi's first explanation of Eretz Nod, it's the place that he goes because he's an exile, that's where all the exiles go. And it sounds like they stay there. According to Rashi's second explanation, it's a land that trembles and makes people say, get out, you have to go somewhere else. So I think, maybe we'll uh, think about this over the next three weeks before we, the shear resumes. Um, and what's going to happen next, by the way, adds a further dimension. Um, so, okay, spoiler alert. Kain builds a city. Now, building a city is the antithesis of being in exile and constantly wandering. He has a little try. He tries to sort of... Um, tries a little cheat to justify his building the city. Um, you can look at it in... Uh, Pasuk Yud Zion, which will be the next one we'll look at. But uh, so we're left with Rashi's explanation on Tet Zion, which gives you two uh, understandings of Eretz Nod, um, and uh, perhaps there's a, a further discussion about whether he's, if it means the place of exile, he can stay there uh, permanently, or he has to keep moving, which certainly is the implication of the second explanation of Eretz Nod, the land which trembles and makes people um, tell you to go away. We will stop there. We will see each other again in three weeks' time.